This episode is brought to you by Avalanche and Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Enjoy. The government has actually kind of accepted and embraced dollarization. Um, like the the you know the leader of Venezuela has on record you know like said literally the phrase "Thank God for the dollarization." We are aiming to serve millions of people in each of the countries we serve. Alrighty, folks, uh, I have a very special episode for you guys today. I am sitting down with Nevin Freeman, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Reserve. Uh, Nevin and I actually have a little bit of background. Uh, I moderated a panel uh, back at SF Blockchain Week in November of 2019 uh, with Nevin, uh, Jill Carlson, and a few other folks. So this is the second time we're speaking, first time we're getting it recorded and putting it on the podcast. Um, uh, Reserve is a platform that Nevin will end up sharing a lot about. Uh, they have some amazing investors, Sam Altman, uh, I think Peter Thiel, uh, Coinbase, uh, I feel like half the founding team of PayPal. So anyways, I, I won't share too much because that is Nevin's job. But Nevin, welcome to Empire, my friend. Thank you for having me. Super excited to catch up, Jason. I think let's jump right into it. Um, I was going back and listening to uh, our conversation at SF Blockchain Week in 2019. And one thing that really stood out is just uh, these two kind of uncommon beliefs that you guys have at, at Reserve. One, of, one is uh, we believe that access to a stable currency should be a human right. And the second is we believe that hyperinflation can, with time and persistence, be eradicated. Can you just tell us where those uncommon beliefs come from and, and why you believe that they're so important? Like, the way I think about this is that, like, the international community, you know, like, nations when when sort of coordinating with each other it's sometimes useful to come to consensus on you know something where it's like okay we've decided this is super important for anyone who wants to live who who who's trying to live uh what what is in in like un terms a dignified life uh, if you want to live a good life like what are the essential things that humans need access to um especially things where we as humanity sort of have solved that. It's like we, we believe that we can provide access to everybody. So an example that I like to point to is access to clean water and, and sanitation was determined by the UN to be a human right. Um, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean for the UN to say it's a human right? Well, it basically is just a way to build global consensus that like, hey, look, everyone, this is something that everybody needs. It's totally within our technological power and, you know, sort of economic power to provide this to everybody. So we should just consider this a baseline thing that we want to try to provide to every human, regardless of who that human is or, you know, what that human contributes to society. We just want everybody to have it. And so with stable currency, like, um, you know, as basically as history progresses and as we um, figure things out as humanity, we add things to the list of human rights. We generally don't take them away. We're generally not like, oh, you know, people don't need that anymore. It's like, okay, this thing is within our power. Um, so we're going to add it to the list and try to provide it to everybody. And so other examples that are like currently under debate are access to electricity and access to internet where it's like, okay, it does seem like you're maybe not on equal footing with the rest of humanity if you don't have access to, say, electricity. And it does seem like maybe we could manage to provide that to basically everybody. We thought about this because we were trying to figure out how to explain to the world what our feeling is about the importance of access to stable currency. And this human rights framework turned out to be the best way to get that idea across, where it's like, if you think about it, 
if two people, if one person has access to a stable currency and they live in an economy that uh, whose currency is stable, and one doesn't have access to stable currency, you know, can't straightforwardly save money, it, you know, lives in an economy where the the currency is constantly devaluing, they don't really have the same chances of success in life. And and by success, I don't mean you know anything big and fancy. I just mean like the basic functionality of life today in a capitalist world depends on the money being stable. Um, so yeah, so basically. It's it's a pretty straightforward idea once you think about it that like you know um, it's like technologically we can make currencies that exist today available to everybody. There are plenty of currencies that are relatively stable right now. So why are there some people in the world who don't have access to stable money? Um, uh, and so and so yeah. So basically that's you know we believe that it should be considered a human right literally by the UN. You know it's a long road I think for us to eventually hopefully convince the UN and actually have that be ratified. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon but I think that even if the UN doesn't recognize it that way we recognize it that way and people who are familiar with cryptocurrency I think are starting to recognize it that way. But like the the vision the idea for how you could reduce the incidence of hyperinflation is basically make currency substitution a more and more appealing option um, so that as uh, economies that are unstable enough to end up going into hyperinflation as that keeps happening and it sort of happens to like one country every like you know one to three years on the on the face of the planet um, make it so that in virtually all cases they end up choosing currency substitution rather than choosing uh, to try to recreate a new currency so that you know they end up in a more stable regime um, and we just see empirically that just does mean you have better odds of not going into an inflationary cycle again. Um, but then there's a further challenge. If everybody adopts the U.S. dollar, well, then what happens if the U.S. dollar has problems someday? You know, and at least in crypto, it's a popular idea that the U.S. dollar might have problems. Um, you know, uh, and 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 even in finance, you know, some people really do think that that could happen. And so the thing we're trying to do is to build an entire alternate system, like a, an alternate like a to totally alternative reserve currency or even multiple of them um, that are backed by assets like baskets of assets that are not controlled by governments or central banks, which is not to say that governments and central banks are bad. You know, I think that I'm like, I actually tend to be like sort of more pro government and rules and so on than a lot of people in crypto. But you have to acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, fiat currencies, even the best ones, they rise and fall over time. Um, they, they don't tend to last, you know, for like 500 years. Um, and so in the long term, if what we're trying to do is create a stable situation where, uh, you know, where like all countries around the globe have access to stable currency and there's like virtually no risk of hyperinflation, I do think a more sort of commodity type approach to money where we have a stable currency that's backed by a, a basket of assets is a safer bet. And so the idea is that currency substitution occurs after hyperinflation and instead of adopting the dollar, you adopt a cryptocurrency that is backed by a basket of assets that's sort of operated in this interesting semi-centralized, semi-decentralized way, but there's no monetary policy involved there. There's no sort of there, there's no central bank steering it and that's able to print money. It's all all of the all of the coins are 100% backed by those real-world assets. And so just one more one more piece of that is that um, we think we could make it more appealing to do currency substitution by by, by there being um, uh, stable cryptocurrencies that are politically neutral. 
that aren't controlled by any other government. Because that's one downside of adopting, say, the US dollar, is the US dollar is controlled by the US government. Some countries, I think, are probably fine with that, and some countries might not be fine with that. Um, and so by having like a, a stable currency that is, you know, where, where you don't have to worry about um, the, a central bank somehow messing it up sometime in the next hundred years, and where that currency isn't controlled by any foreign government, we believe that that could make currency substitution more attractive. So if you put all those pieces together, you could see how maybe over the course of like 50 or 100 years, you could have more and more um, switching to this stable currency um, that has you know very low risk of high inflation at all, um, but especially hyperinflation. And so that's the, that's the really big picture long-term vision of the reserve project. So when you think about a basket of assets, what actually goes in the, what, what, what goes in the basket? That, that is the question. That is the question. And um, yeah, I don't think is, is this a Is this a question that we're trying to solve still, or you guys feel like you have it solved? I, I don't think we have it solved. Um, and, um, you know, and, and part of the, the, the thing is that there's like, um, there's a couple layers to the question. So the simplest version of the question is, well, what assets could you aggregate together today that would be relatively stable? And, you know, the, the, and, and the answer to that is like, it's not that crazy, you know, you could, you could aggregate together, you know, some government debt or, or other debt, you know, bonds of various types, um, even some equities if they're super diversified, um, and, you know, some commodities, precious metals, um, and perhaps other tokenized commodities that are, you know, part of the real world economy. If you, if you build a super diversified basket, it looks pretty good. The challenge, though, is that you know, a bunch of the things that you would want to include are securities. At least today, they're classified as securities. And so there's a question of, well, what happens if you build uh, a blockchain you know, token um, that's backed by you know, tokenized securities? Well, it's probably gonna be considered a security, right? And so that really severely limits which platforms it can be transacted on. And so in the long term, like one of my biggest concerns about with the reserve project, I think one big risk for that long term vision is like, what can we sort of essentially get permission to tokenize and use as backing um, for a currency, you know, where that currency has to be holdable and sendable and tradable by virtually anybody on many different platforms. It can't be so restrictive that it only works on exchanges that are sort of blessed national you know, security exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or something like that. Um, so yeah, so I think the financial question, it's not that it's easy, it's still a good question of what the basket should be, but the tougher question in my opinion is actually the legal question of, you know, over the next decade, you know, working with regulators, like what can we get accepted? Like what, what would be allowed to, to be used in, in this situation? And it's not just a US question because things can be tokenized in any jurisdiction, right? Um, and so, uh, and so there, there's a question of what will be tokenized? What will be tokenized in the US, but also what will be tokenized in Switzerland or Singapore or Hong Kong or like all sorts of different places. So, so yeah, so I think there's, uh, there's a lot of, um, there's actually a lot of legal and, and in some sense political work to be done, I think, for this idea to like fully succeed to its maximum potential. I just wanna add one more thing, which is that the approach that we take as, as the initial founders of the project is not to dictate what that basket should be. And actually we think that the basket needs to evolve over the course of time. Because you know the goal is for it to be stable on like a week by week basis and a month by month basis, but also stable over like a decade by decade basis. And um, 
probably there there isn't necessarily one basket that if you just had exactly that basket, it would last like a hundred years. Like you might actually need to evolve that slowly over the course of time. In fact, I think you probably do need to do that. So another fundamental challenge of the project is like truly decentralized and truly effective decentralized governance to be able to evolve that basket over the course of time. I was going to say, or else you're really just creating, you're just becoming the new central bank and you're Nevin Freeman right. is the new central yeah. banker. <laughs> Absolutely not the goal. You know, that, that I certainly don't want that responsibility and that wouldn't really work um, for, you know, for it to be a, a truly politically neutral and an independent currency. Um, it needs to be something like Bitcoin where you can study the rules and the logic and see how all of the different actors involved are incentivized and come to the strong conclusion like, okay, this is gonna keep just chugging forward. It's just gonna keep working the way that it's been working for the past 10 years in the way that we are all comfortable with Bitcoin. You know, we can tell based on all the incentives and all the mechanisms, it's just gonna keep working that way. Um, so that's what we need to achieve uh, with, our, with our governance protocol. Can you just talk about like what, outside of just the government printing too much money, how, do we, how does a country get to hyperinflation? How does it get that bad? Where? Every government and central bank prints money. Every government and, and country experiences some sort of inflation, right? In the U.S., we you know, market at 2%. Sometimes it gets up to 4%, then 5%. In the, some years, it's 10% in the past, mm -hmm. right? Where, where does it get out of control? I'm not a world expert on this by any means, but like we've studied what happened in Angola and we've studied what happened in Venezuela. Um, and those two places have an interesting similarity. They're both countries where their main export is oil. So they basically export oil and like very little else. Um, and then they, they basically import everything else. Like they do make some stuff in the countries, but a lot of the things, the goods that the country depends on are imported. And so if you look at it from like a whole country economic situation, they're just like sending out oil and, and, and selling that for dollars and then spending the dollars as a country to import uh, the other goods that they need. And so what happened in um, Angola and Venezuela both is that the, you know, the price of oil went way down at some point. All of a sudden their oil was uncompetitive on global markets. Nobody wanted their oil anymore. And so, you know, they had been having, you know, hundreds of millions of US dollars flowing into their economy like all the time. And then suddenly they had none of that. Right. So now they're spending their dollar balance as a country to import stuff. And eventually they just have very few dollars in their in their central bank's reserves. Um, and so you end up with a situation where there's just not enough dollars available. And, and basically the way to think about that is like the people who are buying the oil, they weren't necessarily directly buying it with that local currency. Um, you know, with the Angolan Kwanzaa or with the Venezuelan Boulevard, but they're buying it with dollars and then um, those, those internal um, companies that are then importing things, you know, they have demand to buy those dollars with that local currency. And so it, if, you, if you sort of like think it all through, basically there is like propped up demand for that local currency in like how this whole cycle works. Well, all of a sudden, if there's no demand to buy any of those exports, that's effectively it ends up propagating through to like less demand for the local currency because more and more of that local currency is being spent to buy those dollars from the central bank. Um, but it's not, let, let me break that down because I feel like that wasn't actually clear. The going in the other direction is like, if you're the oil company and you're selling the oil for dollars, you're then going to take those dollars 
and buy the local currency in order to pay your workers and your suppliers um, and so on. So, so that, that those dollars coming in, you're then turning around and you're buying up that local currency at roughly the same rate as local importers are, are selling that local currency for dollars in order to pay for the things that they need to import. So there's sort of like, there's like buying and selling happening every day that's roughly balancing out. Well, if the oil companies basically completely stop buying, but they're still this much selling, um, then, you know, we, we know what that's like in crypto, right? If everyone's selling Bitcoin and nobody's buying Bitcoin, what happens to Bitcoin? The price of Bitcoin goes down against the dollar. So it's basically like that situation that we're familiar with in crypto speculation, where it's like all of a sudden nobody is, is buying, everybody is selling. And so, um, and so basically the currency ends up being massively devalued. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's, that's what happened, um, roughly speaking, you know, with the Venezuelan Boulevard. Um, it, it was really based on that, that situation with being dependent on that single import and oil becoming uncompetitive led to massive drop in demand, led to devaluation against the U.S. dollar. So like mechanistically speaking, and, and that sort of thing happens in other countries, but like, you know, why does hyperinflation occur? Sometimes it can be just from the government overprinting money, um, you know, so, so it's not always the same thing, um, but, uh, but that's, that's at least the situation that our team is familiar with. One of the interesting things about owning Bitcoin is that it kind of creates uh, it's a kind of paradigm shift or, or just like a mental shift from a spending uh, spending mindset to a saving mindset, right? As soon as you start allocating and holding more and more of your wealth in Bitcoin, uh, I think you start saving more and more than ever before. Uh, one, one of my friends, he's, I don't know, he's probably 50 years old. He's been giving his kid uh, Bitcoin for his allowance for like five years. Kid's probably like 17 years old. And his kid, uh, you know, his kid came to me. He's like, Dad, Dad, uh, I really need a haircut, but uh, I don't want to spend any of my Bitcoin. And I don't want to spend any of my dollars because I want to buy more Bitcoin. So that's kind of uh, that, that, that's kind of like the what, you know, the uh, the impact of saving in an asset class that continually gets more and more valuable. What does it do to someone's like mental model of the world and saving when you hold your wealth in an asset that continually you see the value gets smaller and smaller month after month? What does that do to someone's like consumer mindset? Yeah. Um, one of my team members actually recently had a bunch of people film themselves on their phones to kind of try to answer that question to get that point across. I mean, there's a lot of pride for what we're doing. People are very mm -hmm. proud to be a part of the project because um, for them and, and the people that they know in their immediate environment, it's a pretty important thing. You know, it's actually a lot harder for us to recruit people in the U.S. than it is to recruit people in, say, Argentina or Venezuela, because in the U.S., it's very complicated to explain the meaning of the project. And, you know, if someone joins, you know, their friends and family won't necessarily appreciate what they're doing. Um, you know, th there's sort of like a whole in, like barrier to understanding it. Whereas in those countries, um, it's, you know, it's like one of the coolest things you could work on because like, holy crap, we could actually, you know, solve this problem for potentially millions of people. Um, so, so yeah, I think that that, that level of excitement and pride has been contagious. And I think now a lot of the people on the team, even that, that don't have to deal with inflation personally, um, have become very personally invested in, um, in that outcome of, you know, of like basically, yeah, providing access to stable currency. Um, like, Another thing, though, that I want to make clear here is that, like, uh, some people, and I think I was guilty of this myself at at the beginning. It's like you maybe you maybe think of 
uh, country that has such currency issues. And you, you see these headlines about like Venezuela, where it's like a huge portion of the population is in poverty and so on. And that's true. There is massive poverty. Like that is a big issue. Um, but uh, every country has a spectrum of people in terms of the level of wealth and the, and the lifestyles and so on. Um, and so, you know, it's like, you might think of like, you might hear these stories about Venezuela and be like, oh, Venezuela must be such a backwards, you know, developing place. It's like, well, Venezuela actually was like a booming economy for a really long time. They have, you know, tons of infrastructure, you know, because they just had so much money flowing in from all the oil. They had an enormous GDP. So like, it's actually like a really well-educated population, you know, with like tons of tons of um, developed infrastructure and, and, you know, there is like a wealthy class of people that have tons of money. Um, and so um, I just, I just, I think it's also important when we're talking about like the the terribleness and the fact that there is a lot of poverty to also remind people that um, there's also tons of wealth um, and tons of infrastructure in these countries and there's there's a lot of functionality as well you know and it's like yeah the, the, it, it does emotionally suck I think but also like people are very um, resilient and find ways to get by it's not like we're coming and we're the first solution it's like no people have been figuring out solutions for a long time um, we're taking some some parts of it to the next level in a way that is really important and meaningful for some people, for sure. Um, but it's not like we're the savior and they hadn't figured it out before. Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and I'm honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for Avalanche integrations. Number two, new projects. These are not just NFT clones, AMM knockoffs and lending protocols. These are new projects, NFT projects, play to earn games, really, really interesting stuff happening in the Avalanche ecosystem. And number three, Binance just re-enabled C-Chain integration. What in the world does this mean? This means that you, the user, can directly withdraw to your MetaMask, which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier, it makes it faster, it makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH, Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago, pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in, let's say I wanna swap you know, 0.2 ETH, 
for USDT. You can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. So yeah. let, let's talk about reserve a little bit. Nevin, can you paint a picture of just how reserve is used every day? Um, and like what actually happens? You get your paycheck, you move it into reserve, you can earn yield. How does that all work? Um, and yeah. then also just tell us about some of the user numbers I think would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, let me see if I can show you the app itself. Switch to YouTube. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, um, all right. So, so yeah, so basically we've built an app that is a simple dollar account. This interface for sending money, you know, very straightforward. Um, you know, I could send a dollar, I tap send, you know, put in a person's username within the reserve ecosystem to transfer it. You know, I could also do like a QR code payment. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. The thing that is so cool, and, and I should just clarify, for anyone who's curious. So this is like a currently a cloud custody uh, stable coin wallet, right? So we are holding the stable coins right now and the user just has a balance in our database and they can transact in that database. We are going to transition to users holding their own keys and transacting on chain, but that has to be done on a side chain or a layer two because we're based on Ethereum and the Ethereum gas fees would just be infeasible for our users to pay. So we've solved that for now by doing cloud custody and we'll solve that in the future with like layer two or sidechain. But the thing that we've built in this app that's so cool is you can deposit or withdraw, that's what these two words say on these buttons, um, in a bunch of different ways. Um, so like these, these top ones, these top five are Venezuelan Boulevard methods, like the most popular Venezuelan banks Pagamovil is kind of like Zelle, but in Venezuela, it's like an interbank way to send Venezuelan boulevards. Argentine pesos, their banking system is fully connected. So we just have like one payment method there and that works with any Argentine bank. Um, Benesco Panama, so you can do like US dollar transactions in the Panamanian banking system. Um, you can do, you can make an ACH withdrawal in the US. You can get dollars sent to your American bank account, like as a business or an individual, and that's a popular activity. Um, we connect to Uphold. Uh, Colombian pesos are like Argentina, so like any Colombian bank, you can transact in and out um, pretty easily. And then we have these different uh, crypto options. So you can do, you know, reserve stable coins on chain, of course, but then Bitcoin, Tether, USDC, and DAI. Um, and those are all used in, in the markets that we serve in uh, Venezuela, Argentina, Colombia, and Panama. Um, all those cryptocurrencies actually are used in, in a significant way. Um, these markets are closed right now, but we have support for the Axie Infinity tokens because there's a lot of Axie players in Venezuela um, who wanted to be able to get their money into mm -hmm. dollars. Like, let's say that I already, let's say I'm in Venezuela and I had money in my reserve account in dollars. This is like kind of like my savings account. And now let's say I want to go make a transaction where I want to buy something, you know, small purchase, and I want to pay in Venezuelan boulevards. Um, because let's say that the merchant that I'm transacting with isn't a reserve user yet. They don't necessarily directly accept reserve. Um, and like a, the long-term goal is to make it so everybody just accepts reserve. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But we also, we had to build this starting from scratch, starting where nobody accepted reserve. So we wanted to make it really useful to somebody, even if the merchants that you're transacting with don't yet accept reserve. So I can withdraw the boulevards. Um, so here I'm doing $2 withdrawal. And this transaction starts. And so what this says here is that your transaction's in process. Um, you, can, you can see the state of activity if you want to. So if I tap this button, 
it'll show me um, sort of the progress of the transaction. Now what's happening is I've been assigned to a liquidity provider um, in Venezuela who does these Venezuelan Boulevard um, deposits and withdrawals. And we have a whole network of liquidity providers in Venezuela, in Argentina, in Colombia that process these transactions. So this isn't being processed by like our American Delaware C-Corp. This is being processed by like another business that was an existing foreign exchange trading business or crypto trading business um, in Venezuela. On the back end, I'll show you what's actually happening on the back end. So um, this, uh, this fulfillment board is showing like these transactions, like the one that we just queued up. Um, and okay, let's switch over here. So this is now complete. So that transaction is done. I actually now have those Venezuelan boulevards, the 8.76 Venezuelan boulevards in that Venezuelan boulevard bank account. So if I was standing in a grocery store, I could now swipe my card and pay with my $2 worth of boulevards. But I didn't have to hold those boulevards at all. So I didn't have to be subject to that volatility. I could just save in dollars and then switch over and holding them for, you know, a few seconds has like zero risk. Even holding them for like, you know, a day usually doesn't have that much risk. There are days where the boulevard will drop five or 10%, but you know, many days it doesn't. So even if I did this, like before I went to the grocery store and then went to the grocery store and paid with boulevards, that would be not a risk for me. That wouldn't bring that sort of emotional uncertainty that we were just talking about. So basically, uh, so yeah, so on the back end, um, let's see if we can see that transaction. Uh, yeah, so, no, where did it go? Yeah, it's probably right here to, to RSV. So what you're seeing here is like the stream of transactions and I've, I've used some CSS to hide some of the personally identifying information here. Um, so that you don't see any like user data or anything. But um, this is showing you the stream of transactions of people moving money in or out of uh, of the reserve system, you know, via different currencies. Via You can see US dollars and boulevards are mostly what we're seeing on this screen right now, but you'll see like Argentine pesos and Colombian pesos flowing through. These are live buys and sells coming in right now in real time? Yeah, th this is the list of finished transactions. And so you can wow. see we've done 2.47 million total transactions in this system. Um, and this is just like a growing list. We do about 17,000 transactions a day at this point um, uh, through the system. And, and that also includes people just paying with reserve, which is starting to become a more popular thing. But at the beginning, it was mainly people moving money in and out because we didn't have any network effect yet. Now we're starting to have a network effect. So people are also just transacting directly in the app. Um, so yeah, so here's like someone is buying with Bitcoin. And the way that this works is this shows up here and um, one of the independent liquidity providers will eventually claim this. This one is, you know, we can see it's gone past 20 seconds, so it's actually here for longer than we would want it to be. Um, once they claim it, then, you know, they'll process that transaction. The user will end up um, getting their getting their funds. Independent liquidity provider, meaning like a, like a large fund, like a hedge fund or market maker or something like that? The liquidity providers range in size. Some of them are like really large trading desks that have tons of employees. Some of them are much smaller operations that only have, you know, a, a small number of people on the team. Um, and, and they sort of, they fill different niches in our, in our whole ecosystem. Yep. This is fascinating to see the back end. So, yeah. So, so basically, um, you know, so now that that transaction has completed, you know, I have less money in my account. Um, and, and then, like I said, you know, more and more people are paying directly with reserve. So now there's, I think we just hit 8,000 merchants, uh, mainly in Venezuela, that will directly accept reserve as a foreign payment. So there I could go just, you know, basically open up my QR code scanner and, you know, here we are looking at uh, 
you, but um, you know, just scan a QR code and pay uh, directly um, in the store. 350,000 people have created reserve accounts. Um, and that's, you know, Venezuela is the biggest, but Argentina and Colombia are picking up steam as well. Um, in Colombia, people often tra transact with people in Venezuela. In Argentina, you know, similar, but there's also high inflation problems there. Um, so it's like a little over 100,000 people actually visit the app on a weekly basis. And then when we look at the ones that are like the most financially active, it's like, uh, these numbers are a little out of date, but it's a little over 55,000. And uh, in terms of like the amount of usage, we see about $19 million worth of transactions per month um, done by consumers and about $43 million worth of transactions per month done by businesses. And so, um, and the businesses make up a smaller, like a much smaller portion of the total user population, but they're doing a, t a larger total dollar value because, you know, because they're doing sometimes these large currency transactions. They might get a bunch of income in their local currency and then they turn around and buy, you know, dollar stable coins. Sometimes they hold those dollar stable coins. Other times they withdraw those to their American bank accounts that they had already set up because it's, hmm. it's sort of like a, a lower friction channel to do some of that Forex that they're already used to doing. Um, and, and like I said, I think we just surpassed 8,000 uh, merchants who are directly accepting payments. So that's what we're wow. like most excited about is like in some, you know, in some cities in Venezuela, like sometimes maybe more than half of the places you shop, you can just directly pay with reserve. Um, and we really want to keep growing that and get to the point where you could just live your life entirely in dollars. You don't actually have to use this fancy system we've built to go back and forth all the time. And like, like one example case is um, there's like a, a food delivery app that um, you know you can pay with reserve for you know it's kind of like Uber Eats, um, but then they also pay all of their drivers directly with reserve uh, via this like beta payroll product. So I'm really really excited to start to see like you know it's circulating and like people are starting to ask for this other tools to to do more advanced operations and so on. Um, and so that's that's really what we're trying to do. And like the reason why we decided to build this app because like we didn't start off planning to build an app. We started off as just like a pure crypto project. Like we're going to make this stable coin. It's going to be awesome. And then people are going to use it in like other wallets and exchanges and stuff. We decided to build the app because there wasn't anything built for people using crypto as money. Like everything is built for crypto as speculation. Um, and you mm. can kind of reuse those tools for crypto as money, but like there wasn't a great liquidity channel in a place like Venezuela. And there wasn't like a great app for like a normal person who doesn't want to be a speculator to just have a dollar account. Um, so like I'm, I'm super personally excited about building out those other pieces of, of using it as money, like payroll um, and, you know, like doing your accounting and like all those things that are kind of boring, but they're actually necessary for like, you know, running a business or, you know, organizing your personal finances and so on. Why does the government in a place like Venezuela let this happen? Well, um, it actually goes back to an earlier part of our conversation where oftentimes like capital controls are not necessarily there to prevent people from holding foreign currencies. They're there to prevent uh, the central bank's foreign currency balance from running low. And so like parallel um, currency exchange is often tolerated. Um, and and like in the case of Venezuela, um, so, so that's part of the answer. Maybe a better, like more important part of the answer in say Venezuela is that um, the government has actually kind of accepted and embraced dollarization. Um, like the the you know, the leader of Venezuela has on record, you know, like said literally the phrase, thank God for the dollarization. Um, because 
you know, it's really has started to help turn around the Venezuelan economy. Like things were really looking grim. Um, you know, millions and millions of people have fled the country, many of them literally on foot, you know, because they just were completely destitute and they were like, there's nothing for me here. I just have to leave. So, you know, these days, a huge amount of transactions happen in cash U.S. dollars in Venezuela. In many cities, more than half of the transactions happen in cash U.S. dollars. Um, and so we're basically, you know, we're, we are potentially accelerating that trend. Um, but it's it's like the country is already in a situation where it's probably the right move to to at least temporarily accept currency substitution, maybe even indefinitely. That will be a choice they have to make. And so for us to come in and off, offer a digital way to transact in dollars, you know, that's good for the people. That's good for the economy. And, you know, and, and, and the currency is already, you know, ha, has already been devalued so far um, that like at, at a certain point as a government, even if that's not what you wanted to have happen at the beginning, maybe you were resistant at the beginning, you eventually get to a point where it's like, okay, the economy needs to work. The people need to be okay. And so you don't necessarily stop people from using foreign currencies at that point. Um, so yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen what happens in the long term. You know, they, they haven't completely abandoned the Venezuelan Boulevard. Maybe it's not their intention to ever do so. I don't know what will happen. And so it could be that, you know, there ends up being a monetary policy conflict at some point, but at least locally speaking, um, you know, there, there, there are starting to be more and more ways to transact in dollars and, and, and US dollar stable coins in Venezuela. And that's actually been relatively accepted. There's one last part of the equation, which is Venezuela is, actually, in a sense, the most pro-crypto country in the entire world, because they actually were the first to release a, you know, a state-backed cryptocurrency. And when they did that, they actually created crypto regulation. Um, and they, they actually narratively said, basically, we're going to be the crypto country. Like, we're, we're launching this cryptocurrency. Um, I think you've maybe even talked to um, Gabo Jimenez, who's on our team, who was involved in that project. So you know that story and maybe your viewers know that story. It's a crazy story. But one effect of that was that um, they basically said that, you know, we welcome Bitcoin, we welcome Dash, we welcome all cryptocurrencies. Um, and so, you know, a, a dollar stablecoin, it's kind of interesting. It's like, well, you know, if you're anti-dollar, but you're pro-crypto, what is your stance on a dollar stablecoin? The answer so far has been they're tolerated. I guess you could see a world where you know, half the half the uh, half of the population has their savings account in a stable coin. Uh, half the population has their savings in like a you know the Bolivar. And what ends up happening is that the folks who have their uh, wealth uh, in a stable coin end up living a much happier and wealthier and stress free life than the folks who have their wealth denominated in a Bolivar. And you know, you kind of uh, the government almost gets like their hand is forced, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And and it's. One thing there is that like the wealthy people and sophisticated businesses in Venezuela, they've moved all of their money into U.S. dollars and American bank accounts a long time ago. So a huge amount of the wealth of, of savings in Venezuela is already dollarized. And this is kind of making that accessible to ordinary people who don't have, you know, the, the time or budget or even even uh, immigration uh, permission to travel to the U.S. to open an American bank account, right? Because sort of like the 1% in Venezuela, they all have American bank accounts and they transact back and forth between each other with Zelle, just sending dollars back and forth from their American bank account to American bank account. But you can't do that. You can't just open a Zelle account from Venezuela without traveling to the U.S. and like having a U.S. address and so on. So yeah. we're basically taking that pattern and making that accessible to everybody else in the country. Which is, I think, you know, a good thing. It's, it's, you know, the government might actually just not really have a problem with that. 
So if this ends up working, Reserve will become one of the largest uh, banks in Venezuela. Yeah, but it won't be a bank. (laughs) Bank accounts, I I guess, bank accounts, places where people hold their checkings and save their wealth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really could. It really could. And, you know, it's like we're early on, but there are there are you know there have been several weeks where it's the most downloaded financial app in the country um and wow. so if it keeps growing at the rate that it's been growing that really could happen um and we are aiming to serve millions of people in each of the countries we serve yeah and so i guess this gets back to the protocol point which is now that you are rolling out the protocol uh does, does the protocol enable you to get access to like DeFi yield uh lending and borrowing maybe through ave swapping tokens using something like uniswap like do you get access to the composability of DeFi now that you once you roll out this protocol? Is that is that the plan? Yes. So yes. So the 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 way to think about the protocol and what it's going to enable is um, right now we have a stablecoin that's just backed by other U.S. dollar stablecoins. So it's just kind of like a meta dollar stablecoin. The next uh, token that we'll be able to support with this new protocol update is um, essentially uh, dollars with DeFi yield baked directly in. So as a normal holder of this coin, you don't have to go directly access Compound or Ave because the yield is actually going to accrue directly to that coin without you doing anything. Um, and so for users of our app, what this means is we can start to offer kind of like a checking account and savings account where you can move your, your balance into this secondary stable coin and just automatically accrue whatever sort of the, the standard market DeFi yield is. And the way that that works is on the back end, the protocol does actually plug in to Compound and Aave initially, and it's expandable so that it can it can plug into other other DeFi protocols, um, including like AMMs and other lending protocols. And basically, the underlying collateral is still fiat-backed stablecoins, but those fiat-backed stablecoins have been lent out through those other protocols, or or you could use liquid, you know LP tokens, so they're like you know being traded back and forth. And so then that yield automatically accrues to the stablecoin holder. Um, so yeah, so basically it's like an on-chain aggregation that that propagates that DeFi yield to a token holder without them having to do anything. It's yeah. very exciting. And and it's it's laying the groundwork for you know that longer-term vision we talked about of creating you know asset-backed stablecoins that are backed by things that are not fiat currencies. So basically, this uh, upcoming release of the full reserve protocol. Um, we actually, you can think of it a little bit like Uniswap, where like with Uniswap, anyone can go and deploy a trading pair. And that's why there's like 35,000 trading pairs on Uniswap, because it's permissionless, which is so cool. <laughs> um, we decided to basically copy that model and deploy smart contracts that are factory contracts, which means that anyone can use our smart contracts to basically deploy a new basket-backed stablecoin with whatever basket they've defined and with whatever governance protocol they've defined. So we'll have sort of our, our default governance protocol, which you could copy and paste, but you could decide, you know, I think this is a cool idea, but I think that the governance should work this other way. Or I think that we, sh- we should try a token that has this very different kind of basket. So we're going to start it off with this and we're going to govern it with the same protocol, basically allowing others to create stable coins with the reserve platform um, instead of us being the only ones to create them. So it's a permissionless platform for creating stable yeah. coins and people can uh, allocate just on like on Uniswap, what, you know, a yes. lot of the pairs, there's no, there's no trading on most of the pairs on Uniswap, but people can vote with their money. Right. And so exactly. if someone likes this basket, they like the governance. Exactly. Uh, and they, then capital moves into it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. I, that's cool. I'm so excited. And, and I think yeah. in the short term, 
probably there won't be tons of them created because it's not quite like a Uniswap pair where like there's a reason for like every crypto project to create one. But um, if the reserve stablecoins that we create and initially release start to become popular, then I think other people will look at it. And, and hopefully like the idea is to make it so that, yeah, if you have another idea of how to do it, you don't have to convince the governors of existing stablecoins to do that. You can just go deploy it. And like you said, people can vote with their capital. So this makes it so that if we don't come up with the right idea about what the basket should be or how the governance should work, we're, we're making it easier. We're lowering the barrier to entry and sort of providing, you know, automation and social permission for others to basically fork it and, you know, and do whatever they want to do with it. Um, so I think it could be that the, the thing that gets most popular is something that we wouldn't have thought of. I didn't, I, I will admit I did a lot of research for this and I didn't, did not, uh, did not realize you guys were building that. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's great. I know the topic is supposed to be reserved, but can I just ask you a few questions? Yeah. Let's flip the interview. What do you think is like the weirdest thing happening in crypto right now? Not the most interesting, but like the weirdest. I mean, the stuff happening with NFTs is just completely bizarre, but I think that's yeah. almost like, I don't know. It's NFT. I'm completely exhausted right now because I've been out till 2 a.m. every night this week uh, because it's <laughs> NFT NYC week. Uh, and uh-huh. I can assure you there's been some weird stuff happening at some of these NFT parties. Uh, but no, like on a more on a, on a more real no, like I think um, I would call all of crypto really weird, and I think it's why it makes it so interesting. And so, like I think what's weird is like I've been speaking to some founders of some like pretty tier one crypto companies, and they're thinking about doing some weird things, like turning their company into a DAO because they're worried about the mm-hmm. regulatory crackdown that's going to happen over the next several right. months. And these are like massive, massive crypto companies that have been around for several years, and because they're so worried about regulators, they're literally thinking about launching, turning their company into a DAO. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it's also fascinating, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, on a more playing with the tools type of thing, some of the bridges uh, that are, I think bridging is going to be uh, quite popular and like a pretty big space to invest in as bridges. Yeah. And I think those are weird and funky um, and like, complicated to use, but also pretty cool. Here's here's the weirdest thing I've seen is uh, watching DAO governance play out is completely bizarre. Uh, and like, honestly, it seems like a complete nightmare, but also one of the coolest developments in, in like human governance and coolest yeah. experiments in human, go- uh, human governance that like the world has ever seen. Uh, complete nightmare, also so much potential. So... That that's what I've been spending like my my weekend hours doing is like totally looking totally. It, messing around on these Discord channels and being like oh my god this is completely absurd. <laughs> other than reserve, what do you think? Like, do you see other projects that are interesting or phenomena that are interesting in terms of the rise of crypto as money? People using crypto um, to you know for for ordinary transactions for ordinary savings. Um, and it's fine if the answer is no. I mean, there aren't. I think there aren't very many projects yet. But I just am always curious to learn about other things that are maybe outside of my sphere that are going in the same direction. Like I personally think that they're going to end up being, you know, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of projects that are supporting that as that market is established. Um, but I'm curious, since you talk to a lot more people in the industry than I do, um, like, what interesting stuff have you seen happening there? Um. So basically you had, I would call it DeFi 1.0. You had like Aave and Compound and Uniswap and we're kind of recreating 
recreating the traditional uh, financial capital market infrastructure just in a decentralized manner. What's happening now with DeFi 2.0 is quite interesting. There is one company in particular uh, that I think is really interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know Jill Carlson, but she's the one. Shout out Jill. She pointed this out to me. Um, it's called Sublime. In DeFi right now, you can only get over collateralized loans. And the reason you can't get under collateralized loans is because there's no access, there's no credit system in right. crypto. It'd be really tough to build that, right? And so the because so so much of it is anonymous. Um, mm, yeah. Sublime lets you get under collateralized loans uh, based on your social credit, so you can set up fully customized borrow and credit lines, which can be fulfilled by lenders comfortable with the terms of the debt, uh, and it's all based around uh, your social capital. How is your social capital tracked? This is the uh, this is the question that I do not know. Cool. Uh, borrowers can verify their digital identity with one of the supported identity verification methods, whether that's Twitter, GitHub, Instagram, or other digital profiles, and you can stake your digital reputation. So that's sublime. I know Ave is working on something uh, very similar. Ave is. Um, I recorded an episode with Stani from Ave like two weeks ago, and, and, and we released it. I think it's the most recent episode or maybe the two episodes ago. Ave wants to give you the ability to build decentralized uh, social media applications on top of the on top of Ave. The reason they want to do this is because then this can act, let them access the uh, uh, like the social graph, which mm. would allow you them to get credit like social social credit data, basically. Uh, which would allow Ave to do under collateralized loans. Wow, some interesting That's shit coming crazy. down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine if there's a decentralized Twitter and it's built on the Ave protocol, then Ave gets access to the entire social graph, which allows people to easy, easily stake their uh, identity and their their account to then get access to under collateralized loans. I know, I know you. I would give you a loan because I trust you, right? And that. And that's all, that's all you need for a loan. And right. I'm lending to you based on your social credibility, the trust I have for you, right? I'm, and I don't have to see any of your credit score or your assets. I just trust you're going to pay me back. Right, right. Cool. Super interesting. Awesome. All right, Nevin, we got to right. cut this off. I think we yep. can talk for yep. hours. Yep. So. <laughs> yep. yep. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Uh, what is it? Reserve.org? Yep. Do I remember that correctly? Yep. Folks Reserve. should go check out reserve.org. Uh, if you like this episode uh, and you're listening on Apple or Spotify and you made it all the way to the end, give us 30 more seconds of your time. Leave us a five-star review. If you're watching on YouTube, I mean, you're a real trooper for watching all the way to the end here. But give us a comment. Throw us a like. Go follow Nevin on Twitter. Thanks again for coming right. on, my friend. Excellent. Yep. Good to see you. Talk to you soon. All right. Be well.